Psalm 123. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, getting to church is hard. <laughs> it's just it's just hard, right? So, we can just be honest here that it's, it's difficult to show up. It's difficult to show up at all. It's difficult to show up on time. But yet, it's something that we must do for our own souls. And there are many things that keep us from coming to be with God's people, coming to fellowship with the Lord, coming to worship Him. And, and there's many excuses that we come up with along the way. There's many hardships and difficulties that we deal with. I, I think we can all be quick to acknowledge them. It's what you do with, in those circumstances, in those situations, that really colors your experience, that colors your uh, outcome for the day, for your life. Because we've been told not to forsake the assembling of the believers. We should come together with God's people. And the scriptures rightly acknowledge that there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need the community to come around and to love each other and to serve each other and to make up those different members of the body of Christ, each member being valuable. Not, uh, there's not one member that is uh, more valuable or less valuable than another, but each plays its specific role in the body. But yet, we have to come each week with expectation. We have to come each week uh, looking to serve others, looking to meet the needs of others, looking uh, to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. It's just something that we have to do as God has called us to do this. Now, in Psalm 123, this psalm sits in a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, or the Songs of Ascent. The, the psalms uh, that you kind of see beginning in the 120s here, moving through this section, are Psalms of Ascent. What, what does that mean? Well, these psalms would have been sung by those who are making their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. There were several... Uh, Things several times of year where they were to, where the people of God were to travel to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals. Uh, you know, one of course being Passover. Every year there would be this mass migration, this trek to Jerusalem to to celebrate the Passover feast. And here, along the way, they would sing this these different collections of psalms that would ring out throughout the people of God as they made their way. And we've just come off of looking at several other psalms that weren't psalms of ascent, but were psalms of thanksgiving. Now, as we come to uh, this chapter, as we come to this specific psalm, this psalm is a psalm of lament. It's not a psalm of thanksgiving. He's lamenting. He's, there's this lamentation over circumstance and situation that he is dealing with. And this really gives us the key to making it to gather with God's people on time. Because we have lots of excuses. We have lots of reasons why we don't want to come. And here's what you do. You pray along the way, and you get all your complaints out in front. That's what you do. You just say, like, Lord, I just woke up, and I'm really tired, and I really don't want to go to church. <laughs> I just really don't want to do it. And here are the things that are against me. Here are the circumstances in life that I'm dealing with. Here are the hardships that I have ahead of me. This is what the psalmist does. 
He doesn't simply complain. He doesn't simply share these things as an end in themselves. But what he does instead is he prays his problems out. This is what we are to do with our problems. This is what we are to do with the circumstances that we are dealing with in life. If you have hardship, if you have worry, if you have anxiety, if you have fear, if you have a deadline that's looming, if you have difficult people in your life that are making things hard for you, the temptation for us is to either, one, internalize these things, or two, to find the person next to us and just complain and gossip. But what the scriptures tell us again and again and again is that we ought to pray these things out, that we ought to bring them to the Lord. We should cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. It's what the scriptures tell us. And so here along the way, God's people are beginning to declare their hardships. They're lamenting their situation. They're sharing about the difficulties that are in their life because they know that when they get there, they want to be in the right frame of mind. Now, we have to have one little caveat, one little sidebar here that you need to understand. What we're not saying is that you have to prepare yourself in such a way that you're all cleaned up before you come to church. Your mind is right, you've been doing the right things. That's not what it's saying. It's saying you're preparing yourself in a spirit of worship, that you're coming under the lordship of Christ, that you're recognizing that he rules and reigns. If you are a Christian, if you trust in Christ for salvation, you're simply recognizing that all things belong to him. All circumstances, all situations, all resources that you have, all your time, everything is his. And you're, again, committing to live under his authority, his rule and reign. And so it's not that we must make sure that we have the right attitudes. If you need to come to church grumpy, fine, come to church grumpy. Just pray it out along the way. We're not asking, the scriptures aren't asking for us to get our lives together and to fix ourselves before we come. Of course we can't do that because it's only Jesus who can fix us. We can't fix ourselves. You can change your behavior, but it doesn't change your motive. You can, you can teach, you know, a, a young child, a, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, to, to not take something from somebody else, but they still want it. That inner desire is still there. They still are, are upset that they can't take from another. It still exists within the heart of that, uh, that child. And so here, as God's people make their way to worship him, as they make their way to the Temple Mount to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise and to join in these feasts that God has called his people to, they make their way confessing, declaring the hardships that they are experiencing. They're preparing them, themselves to meet with the Lord. And here's what they're getting at. They're, they're, they're really beginning to just say, like, Lord, we are afflicted. We are experiencing hardship. We are oppressed by others. And so we want to look at this passage. There's only four verses, but there's a lot here. There's only four verses, but here's what we're looking at. The way that those who are dealing with hardship and difficulty look to the Lord, quite simply, and then asking the Lord for mercy. The way that we look to him and the request that we make of him. It's the way that we look to him and the request that we make of him. And so we look at verse 1. We read this. First thing we see, where to look. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And so the psalmist comes out right, right out the gate 
and he places his hope in the Lord, in God as the sole source of help. It's only God who can help him. To you, I lift up my eyes. Now, of course, there's this longing, this expectancy, this need, right? Probably like our, our closest way of, of, of excitement that we have in this sense is like maybe you're, you're looking forward to a vacation. You're looking forward to time off. Maybe you got a, a sweet package coming from Amazon and you're like hoping, waiting, and counting down the days. Maybe you've got a friend coming to visit. You're hoping, waiting, planning for that day. Well, here, when the psalmist communicates this, what he's doing by looking to the Lord is he's putting intent. He's declaring not only with his words, but with actions, his place of rest, his place of trust. In doing this, what he's saying is this. Lord, if I'm looking at you, if I am reflecting upon who you are, if you are my source of help, if I have my eyes set upon you, then I can't be looking at anything else. There's nothing else for me to look at. I can't be looking at my problems. I can't be looking at those who are attacking me, who are persecuting me. I can't be looking at my hardships. You can't be looking at yourself. But his eyes are set solely upon the Lord. This, of course, is similar to the very words of Jesus. Where he says, if anyone would come after me, right? When he says that, come after me, what he really means there is if you want to walk in my footsteps. He doesn't mean like, if you kind of like want to take the same path as me, if you want to take the same directions. He means if you want to find your identity in me, if you want to literally walk in my footsteps, here are the instructions to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow. In those three simple commands, we find this similar uh, idea. To deny yourself is to say, I'm not going to take my own path. I'm not going to do my own thing. If I'm going to come after Jesus, that means I'm going to determine that I'm going to do all the things that he does, I'm going to follow in his path, in his footsteps, in the most literal sense. I'm not going to kind of be in the general area of Jesus. Like, I'm going to try to take the same steps that he takes. But before this, before you can even go on that journey, you've got to come with the mindset of denying yourself. And it's that transaction that comes between denying yourself and taking up the cross that is difficult. Because I think we want to say, like, oh, yeah, you know, self-denial, no problem. I can, I can do that. I can handle that. But the first step in self-denial comes in taking up the cross. Because in order to take up the cross, you have to put down all the junk that's in your hands. You're trying to carry things around. We're trying to carry things around. We're all traveling with some sort of baggage some sort of expectation, some sort of understanding that we want something. And what Jesus says is, when you come, when you come to me, don't come and 
ask me to sign off on all of your hobbies and all your experiences and your future travel expectations. He's not coming for that. He's like, you need to put all of that aside. You're putting all of those things down and taking up what I am going to give to you. It's after you do this that then you can follow Jesus. You can't deny yourself and then follow Jesus if you aren't willing to take up the cross because it's not really following him then if you're doing exactly what he has done. And here, this is what the psalmist is also declaring. To you I lift up my eyes. His eyes are not focused on himself, on his circumstances. He realizes that his only hope is the Lord. His only rescue is God. And then he puts it in perspective, which for us doesn't really have the same sort of resonance that it would have had with the psalmist. But let's unpack it a bit. He says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Like Basically, when we think about that, we just think like, okay, yeah, God, he's up there, he's in the heavens. You've got like my, my picture of like the cartoon God, like the fluffy clouds, like the, you know, the kind of like gold-looking throne. It's kind of like the go-to in our minds. Like, we can be honest, like that's just how it is. But what, what is really happening here for the psalmist is this. He's remembering where God is. Not just where he's located, but he's remembering that the enthronement of God means that he is ruling and reigning. To be enthroned meant that you were in power, that everything was subject to your rule. And so by recognizing where God is, by, by putting this in his mind, he recognizes that all the things that feel out of control upon the earth, all of the things that seem like they're wild, they all come under the rule of Christ. If God is enthroned, he can look to God who rules and reigns over all circumstances, all situations. Of course, this speaks to God's endless resources as the one who rules and reigns, his sovereignty over all things. He goes to the source of all power, all authority, all wisdom. It's a great place to look when you're in trouble. When you're in circumstances that are difficult, you, you don't go and look around for something that, you know, is subpar, substandard. You look for the place of strength. Now, too often we think that we are the place of strength, that we can fix things. But it's precisely in our weakness that we find strength. Isn't that what Jesus told us? When you are weak, I will be strong. It's confessing that we are weak, that we need help, that we need rescue. And this is what the people of God do on their way. They know where to look. This is what the psalmist says. I look to the heavens. Now he tells us in verse 2 how we are to look. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy. Now, of course, this speaks pretty simply uh, in this metaphorical language. 
there is a servant and there is a master. And those who are the servants look with expectancy, look to see what the request of the master might be. But this isn't really what he's getting at here. What he's getting at is that there are two levels of authority. There's the servant and there's the master. But there is a way that the master will act and the servants will then respond. This idea here, of course, is like a waiter or a butler standing at attention, waiting, looking intently with laser focus to see what the master will do. Not necessarily that the master will make a request, but to see how the master will move. This is the intensity that the psalmist is trying to communicate. That there is a focus that is required when you are afflicted, when you are experiencing hardship and difficulty, when you are oppressed, you're looking to see how God will rescue, how he will save. Your eyes are fixed upon him, waiting for that moment when help will arrive. The psalmist says we fix our eyes we look to the Lord until he has mercy on us. We, 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 we kind of gloss over this section quickly because we say, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. I want you to see there that there is an implication of time. And we live in an age where time is our enemy. We live in an age where we are constantly fighting against time. Right? Not only can you buy something online and have it shipped to you, now you can get it for free shipping, and then it's like seven days, now it's like two days, and now we live in an area where you can get it delivered in one hour. Like, it's just getting crazy. It's, it's getting out of hand. Thing, you know, they have, like, plans to, like, have, like, drones fly things to you within 15 minutes. Like, what is going on? It's getting crazy. Why? Because we don't live in a time where we plan or have patience. And what the psalmist says here is if you want to make it through difficulty, hardship, you need to learn what it is to have patient trust. Right? Here's, here's what he says. I know you're my only hope. I know you're the only one who can rescue me. I know you're the only one who can save me out of my circumstance and situation. And so, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. He's calling for us to set our gaze upon God with patient trust. Patient trust. It's difficult for us to have patient trust, to wait when it seems like nothing's happening, when it seems like things aren't, aren't going according to plan. It's difficult for us to have this problem, 
Like, it's difficult for us to, to respond in those circumstances. Recently, I, I went through, like, this period where I was dealing with this on a much more trivial level. I have a long commute to work, and I'm constantly trying to figure out, like, shortcuts. And I'm constantly analyzing, how do I get around this? How do I get around this? And so, on my commute, I've been, I've been using Google Maps to, like, help me navigate, and like, great, set it to go, and then I'll run into some traffic, and I'll be like, oh, I can't believe there's traffic, and trying to, like, look around, like, while I'm sitting there, like, oh, okay, okay, I can go around this way, there's a side street, and I can cut over here, and I can go up here, and I'm, like, trying to, like, reroute the maps, and trying to, like, figure it out in my mind, like, oh, I can cut off, like, 15 minutes, oh, there's a frontage road, I bet you people don't know about that, I'm, I'm, like, working through it, and it's really trial and error, but, but a lot of this is stemming from my lack of, of trust in, in that map, in that plan. Now, what I did do was, and then I said, you know what, let me, let me try it. This is not an advertisement for any of these companies, by the way. What I did do was I, I did say, let me, let me try out some other options. Let me see what else is out there. So for my commute, I tried out this other one called Waze, where you're like this little car and you eat candy along the way. It's weird. But the thing that made me feel good about Waze is, is when you set the map, it's constantly changing, at least for me, it's constantly changing because it's, it, the, the route changes based upon user reports and what people are saying. And so like I would be driving like two minutes in one direction, then I'd be like, oh no, you're gonna go over here now. And then I would like, then it would change again. And I'd be like, oh, okay. So it keeps changing my route and being like, you, you shaved off a minute, you shaved off three minutes, you shaved off four minutes. And it's constantly like luring me down. And then I, and in the process, now, when I just set up the ways, I'm just like, I don't even look at alternate things. I just have patient trust that this thing is going to get me there. That's going to shave off the most amount of minutes. Now, how did that happen? It came through seeing the faithfulness again and again and again so that I did not need to put my hands on it. And this is exactly what the psalmist is getting at. When he says here that we are to have patient trust we are to wait and to wait for God as our only rescue, our only hope. But he's not saying, like, you should wait with no evidence of his faithfulness ever. Your patient trust is based on his infinite record of faithfulness, his infinite level uh, of, uh, of trustworthiness. Your patient trust isn't like, well, I really hope he comes through. It's I know that he has come through, and I know that his timing is right and good and perfect every time. Right and good and perfect every single time. And so, of course, I can trust him. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's what we're called to do, to patiently trust in the Lord. We have to develop this, but we develop it as we look to, to, to recognize, as we come to the realization that he really knows what is best for us at the right time, what we need. And so as Christians, we rely upon the Lord. We, he provides all things for us. We submit to him and we recognize his lordship over our lives and we respond to him. We respond to him. This means that as we develop a patient trust with him and we go along the way, sometimes he, he just needs to get in there and be like, oh, you're going the wrong direction. Like, I need to, to correct your route. You're, you're on track, but now let's, you got a little off track. Come on, let's go. A lot of times we get off track without realizing it. Why? Because we don't have patient trust. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're like, okay, I'm just going to go now. Like, 
I'm just, I'm just going to go. I can't wait any longer. I'm not sure what the Lord is doing. Like, I just got to do something. Other people are saying, like, how come you're not doing anything? How come you're not, how come you're not moving on? How come you're not changing your mind? How come you're not making plans? And we begin to respond to how others feel or how we feel or how society tells us, oh, you need to have a plan in place. You need to do these things. But wait patiently for the Lord. Wait, and he will direct you. Now, we are to wait until he has mercy upon us. This is how long we are to wait. He, he knows that he's in hardship. He knows that he's in difficulty. He knows he's uh, experiencing anxiety and fear, oppression. He knows that he's afflicted, and he's like, I'm going to wait until the Lord has mercy upon me, because he knows he's the only one, God's the only one that can rescue him. He's going to per- patiently trust, patiently wait, until the Lord extends his mercy. Now, we come to verse 3, and we get a little insight into exactly like what's going on. We have the action of what he's doing now. We come to verse 3, and we see his request, his plea for mercy, and then the reason why he needs this. Verse 3, he requests this. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. So this group of people, they find themselves in a situation, the psalmist, and I think you and I often get in a circumstance like this, where we've had enough. Where we are dealing with hardship here, contempt is specifically called out. And we have had enough. And so we ask the Lord for help. He's not simply content with asking one time. This is, over the course of the psalm, he asks three times. Three times. He says, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. This is, this is the third time he's asked. He doesn't just wait with one request. He's begging. He's persistent. This means his request is active. Friends, when we are in a circumstance, when we're in a situation where we're going through hard things, when we're going through difficult things, we need to be persistent in approaching the throne of grace. Not coming once with the request, not coming twice with the request, but opening up a conversation with the Lord and asking him to meet our deepest needs. He doesn't just let things happen to him, but he seeks out the Lord. And here's what he says. I need help because we have had more than enough of contempt. He says, some of your translations might say that you are, that he is exceedingly full this means like he's completely satisfied, over, overstuffed. With something you don't really want to be overfull with, contempt. This comes from this word meaning uh, to be despised. It's often 
connected to the, to the idea of uh, ridicule or mockery, similar to reviling. There's outside uh, people that are mocking, reviling, coming against the psalmist, coming against God's people, and saying, you guys are foolish. They're the subject of mockery and ridicule. They're trying to honor the Lord. They're trying to walk with God. They're trying to do the right things. And whether that, that ridicule, that mockery come from, from the pagan nations or whether it come from other uh, other believers, right? Unfortunately, that's something that we experience a lot in the church. We kind of have like a lot of friendly fire. Where it's like, hey, like you're supposed to be on my team. But yet you're cutting me down. You're attacking me. You're trying to put expectations upon me that are not Christ's expectations. And here we can, we can begin to feel overwhelmed. We can feel this anxiety, mockery, reviling. And what he says here is this, we have had more than enough. Like, um, we're, we're super tired. We, we are having a hard time dealing with this. But if we read a little bit deeper, if we look a little bit more closely, here's what's actually being said. For those who are trying to trust in Christ for salvation, who are finding their totality of their identity in him, for those who are identified in Christ, in Christ alone, who are obeying him, who are seeking to follow him, to hear his voice, and to be led by him, not any faster or slower than he would lead. When there are those who come against you, whether they be from secular society, whether they be from friends or family, whether they be from those who would be fellow Christians, when they come against you, when they mock you, when they ridicule you, when they revile you in this way, what they're ultimately doing is they're very plainly coming against the Lord. Because as God's people, as his servants, we simply wait for the master and then we respond. It's not up to us to decide what we're doing. It's not up to us to say, like, oh, you're right, you're, you've convinced me. We're responding to Jesus again and again and again. And so when they come against us, what they're really doing is attacking the Lord, whether they know it or not. They're showing contempt for God. They're despising his timing, his ridicule. They're ridiculing his plan. The Apostle Paul tells us that this is how life would be. Because to the world, the wisdom of God appears to be foolishness. Now here, the psalmist continues in verse 4, and he gives us the reason why mercy is needed. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. Day after day, he's like, we've had this, we've dealt with it. Scorn, hatred, we have experienced hardship. And this group of people who are mocking us, like, they're kicking back, they're at ease. They're acting in pride and arrogance and they're mocking us. 
The psalmist says, we have come to an end. We are crying out for help. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. It's one thing to, like, get mocked by people who have hardship in their life as well. But when it's people who, like, it seems like things are going easy for them, it's like, oh, like, you have, like, a crazy amount of resources, or you have, like, great opportunities, and you're over here mocking us, you're reviling us. That's difficult to take. Because comparison begins to creep up in our mind. Covetousness begins to creep up in our minds. The afflicted. We, we have hard, things are hard for us. We're going through difficult situations. We're trying to obey the Lord, but these people, they're not even trying that hard. Or, or maybe like they're not even putting in the, the effort to obey the Lord, but life seems so easy for them. They have great opportunities. They have great resources. They get to go on great trips. They have great, uh, a great paycheck. These are all the things that begin to creep into our minds when we look over at those who oppose us. We say, like, how come it's not harder for them? Like, I'm trying to do the right thing, and here I am, struggling, trying to keep it together. The psalmist is making these confessions. This is why he begins to say, like, I gotta stop looking at these guys. I gotta set my eyes upon the Lord. That's how we get to verse 1. He's looking around, comparing himself. He begins to feel scorned by these proud people. And what this does, when you begin to compare yourself, what it does is it highlights the hidden insecurities in your life, the weaknesses that you have. You begin to look at those things and say, oh man, like, I, I'm, I'm really like horrible at that. I'm really not good enough. I need to put in hard work. And what you begin to do is to justify your own existence. You begin to say, well, I'll show them the things that they're mocking me about, the things that they're reviling me over. I'll show them. I'm gonna, I'll get there. And eventually I'm going to have more vacation days. I'm going to have a bigger paycheck. I'm going to own more property. I'm going to have whatever it is that we have that point of comparison when we have this unhealthy comparison, when we have this unhealthy mindset, we begin to think in that way. I'll show them. I'll prove myself. This begins to control him. And so he prays. Now the truth of the matter is, we must always pray when these things begin to creep up. Because there's nothing like the danger of comparison and trying to prove yourself to others. That is so dangerous. When you're looking in comparison, compare, in comparison to others and you begin to develop that attitude of I'll show them, what you're essentially doing is coming to this place where you're saying, I'm going to show them that I am valued, that I am important, that I will be recognized. And in the process of chasing that down, what you've done is you've made an idol. 
Because the truth of the gospel says that you are already loved, accepted, adopted. You're already completely loved by God so deeply. You're already valued so greatly that he gave his life for you. There's nothing more that you could do to earn that. There's nothing you could do to earn that in the first place. And there's nothing that you could do to justify your existence, to validate who you are before anyone else. If you are already adopted, if you are already loved by the king, by God who is enthroned above, then you already have the highest value. And so there is no need to prove yourself if you already have the acceptance of God, the one who has the highest approval, whose approval you need the most, if you've been accepted into his family, if you trust in Christ for salvation, you don't need to seek the approval of others. You don't need to justify your existence before others. Sometimes we get in that path of seeking to justify our existence before others. And when we do so, the contempt that we receive is often what we would have received, what we should receive apart from Christ. We should, if it were not for Christ, be seeking to justify our existence to be proving that we are valuable. But this is why Christ pressed into his contempt so purposefully. Why he pressed into the contempt that he received so specifically so that we would not have to receive this contempt, that it would not have to be true of us. We finish In the book of Mark, and we see the story of Christ and how he has dealt with contempt. If you flip over to uh, the book of Mark, let's say... Uh, Let's say 15. 15. Mark 15. Beginning in verse 16, we read this about Jesus. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak 
and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You see, friends, as Jesus was there experiencing the mockery, as he was being reviled, As he was being derided. There's a moment where the highest leaders in the land who have been constantly opposing Christ simply say this. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What a temptation. In that moment, what a temptation to say, oh, you want to see? You want me to prove myself to you in this moment? You want me to do that? In an instant, Jesus could have done that. But what he decided in that moment was that obeying the Father... waiting for the help, looking to the heavens, was more important than coming off of the cross to prove himself, to say, I showed you. You don't believe me? I've been trying to show you this whole time. You don't believe me? He could have easily come down and put his glory on display. He could have shown them right there. And they would have felt so dumb. But instead, he obeys the Father, he looks to the heavens, and waits for the help that will come on that third day. Why? So we do not have to endure the contempt that he endured. If he did not, if he came down off the cross, then it would be completely justified, the contempt that we received. We would be deserving of the contempt and mockery because of our own sinfulness, 
But what Jesus did was absorb all of that for us. He took all of that for us so that when people mock us, when they bring contempt to us, we can say, not true, I am accepted, I am loved, I am approved of by God because of what Christ has done for me. Say what you will, but I know that I'm accepted. Mock all you want, but I know that I'm approved of. Jesus had the opportunity to do exactly what we often want to do, to prove ourselves to others. And so, friends, when we are in situations where we are experiencing contempt and ridicule and mockery, when we are experiencing anxiety and worry and fear, let us not be people who are going to say, I will prove you wrong. But let us be people who say, go ahead, you can make that statement, because I know whom I have believed and I am loved. I'm accepted, I'm adopted. We look not to flesh and blood, we look not to the approval of mankind, but we lift up our eyes to Christ who is enthroned in the heavens, and we live covered by the wonderful blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your loving kindness to us. We're thankful that you have shown us your love, that you have accepted us. When we trust in you for salvation, Lord, you have given us that adoption into your family, Lord, and we come under your lordship. We're so thankful, Lord, for all that you have accomplished, all that you have done to demonstrate your love toward us, Lord, and we receive it with gladness. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us now to respond and worship. We love you. Amen.